Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, Sport! Eine Methode, Krankheiten, Dirk Unfaller zu ersetzen. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and I'm joined by Snow Shoveler Monthly's Man of the Year, Simon <laughs> Maddox. How are you, Simon? How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I believe you've been shoveling snow because it snowed here and it snowed there. Not to start the podcast on weather chat, but... How can you not when it's snowing, right? I was out there yesterday. Of course you were. Doing, doing a bit of shoveling I got with my mittens. Hey, you got mittens? Well, when we worked in Portland, a friend of ours worked at Dekine, um, which does like bags and ski gear mm. and all that sort of outdoor stuff. And yeah, he gave me a pair of very nice leather mittens. Like so proper mittens, so you've got like one big chunky pocket for your fingers. I don't know how to describe mittens. That's the first time I've done it. Big old boxing glove type thing yeah it's it's lovely wow okay it sounds luxurious but also infantilizing but that's beside the point <laughs> that's i mean i've got to walk that line now like me with my beard shoving in snow like an absolute yeti monster i need to take the edge off and let the people know that i'm nothing to fear uh, and the mittens do very much take the edge off i've worked out a really good solution for our street because we live in essentially a cul-de-sac and through the sort of snow we had before like it's one of the shitty situations that always seems to happen where you have the snow came a week before christmas and then arrived a week after christmas so we could have if all things being considered had snow if the weather wasn't a bunch of bastards during this sort of quite heavy snow we had in the early parts of december I spent a lot of time, because I'm doing home office, just going out and clearing all the snow for the entire street. Oh. Yeah, which is being paid back as we speak, because uh, the last two days when I looked out the window to check early doors, if I should be clearing the path, all my neighbours were out clearing my path for me. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> Look at my integration skills. Were they waving at you in, in, through, through your window? Be like, hey, Mr. Snowman. <laughs> this is how bad it was. The snow was so heavy they couldn't see me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I, d- I didn't make. I didn't want to make a, a sound or be seen in case. That's even worse. It's like they're cleaning the path and I'm observing them do it. It's best that I just come out and say, "Ah, oh, danke schön." I mean, if you want to go full integration, you'd lean out your window and tell them what they were doing wrong. That's only certain sections of society now, Simon. Let's not let's not generalize. Not everyone's a, fair, fair, a fair, fan sorry, of the sorry. society of autocorrection. Uh, but yes, it would actually be the expert level way to be Germany. <laughs> I'm not saying like telling them they're, they're stupid, but just saying like how to improve. Yeah, just directly telling them yeah. that you're doing it wrong and you should do it better. Yeah. That's at least 30% of life here, I would have said. You've got to start with a hello. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Because there's nothing nicer than hearing that tone of voice in the morning. Yeah, the siren call. <laughs> I would I would be, be totally okay if they just turned around and beat me to death with their snow shovels. I'd be like, I deserve this as they're, as they're smashing yeah. my head in. Like, yep, this is the right decision, <laughs> lads. Well done. <laughs> Good work. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, aside from the snow, and, I mean, that's why you have to start with the snow, there's been, frankly, hee-haw going on this week. <laughs> it's been the quiet one. Yeah, I feel like th- the sensible thing to do is for the first week of every year to be a national holiday, all seven days of it, because mm-hmm. I've been trying to do work, but it, my entire department's still on holiday, so it's kind of like, what's the point? Why don't we all just have our holidays here? Why don't they just give us all a public holiday? And we don't need to worry about mm-hmm. it, and we'll come back refreshed for week two of 2022. I went to the office on Friday. That was, I mean, mediocre, because it was just... I literally walked in the office and all the lights were off. There <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was no lights on, no one around. Yeah, it was pretty grim, but what are you going to do? 
it's the way it is at the moment. So I'm going to campaign. I think I'm going to petition Olaf Schultz and say, hey, why don't you make the first first week of the year just a national holiday? Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. Yeah. It will resolve that issue quite quickly. <coughs> oh, yeah. I went. Uh, we uh, we, fa- we went to the Tagesmutter. We found a new Tagesmutter for my daughter. Mm-hmm. That's a fun experience. But a pain in the arse trying to find childcare, and that's a common problem in Germany. The, the way it sort of works is you've got the the city run childcare facilities which fill up almost instantaneously because uh, they're so so few of them and there's so many kids are they cheaper as well if they're run by the city i mean they're reasonably cheap price is always the question you could probably find a really nice i mean again not there's not a vast amount but you can find quite nice private yeah crash type things kinder gripper mm-hmm. type things but they fill up as well they fill up really quickly too you just hope and you can find something so we ended up getting a targets mother and that fell through the end of last year for really stupid reasons like nothing we did it was just a stupid situation with the people running the place and then we found another one but they're in a like a flat so they have like a few kids and they have like in a flat and that's a weird I mean, they're perfectly lovely. I'm totally happy with the situation, but at the same time, it's just like it's a weird situation. Yeah. To think about because you're not really, it's not really what you have in your head. I mean, it does seem to be quite a common thing here in Germany to have, yeah, what looks like a residential property, and there are a couple of apartments in there, but there's also like a doctor's office, mm-hmm. uh, a tax advisor. It is is weird. My old doctor's was that sort of walked in a normal building and then on the third floor just a sign on the door you walk in and there's just like a waiting room and a very mm-hmm. normal feeling doctor's office and yeah it's, it's not something i remember happening in the uk i think it was more specialist buildings when i got my wisdom teeth out it was the same scenario and that was when i was living in third and it was like an old stone buildings in the city, city center but they're all like apartments now i guess they used to be single houses Mm-hmm. in the past it was really unnerving because you went in and, and it was just someone's house if mm-hmm. i was to describe a, a back a back street dentist <laughs> this is where i would put it it looked like a victorian back street dentist and then like i knocked um i had a buzzer that was it buzzer pressed the buzzer they opened the door instead of a flat it was a dentist surgery and it looked exactly like a dentist surgery literally pictures of teeth on the walls and like a reception desk and everything you'd expect <laughs> but walking walking up to it, it was a bit strange there's some more modern buildings that have these offices underneath, and that's what the Tiger's Motor we had previously, that was their building. There was, like, flats above it, and then there was a big space downstairs. Okay. And, and you're kind of wondering, did, did they just build them as utility spaces? Or is it was it a bakery mm. before? Or, like, you're always sort of wondering, what was the, the plan in mind here, you know? Because they had them in Newcastle where they'd build, essentially what's a strip mall with apartments above it. Yeah. So so you'd get that. It's quite common sort of 70s development you get in Britain. Mm-hmm. But it's not like that. It's like a single building that's got a multi-use. Or it's a building that is an apartment that happens to have a lawyer, a doctor's office, and um, an optician. <laughs> the natural combo, yeah. Yeah, of course, that's what you need. <laughs> there was a doctor's around me called Dr. Bell, which I always found quite amusing. <laughs> I guess the, the biggest treat you get in Germany is you have, uh, every now and again you see a sign, and it's Dr. Doctor something, and then underneath it, doctor something mm-hmm. just this power play totally unnecessary power play on the building sign yeah did you see uh it was but bavarian's minister president's mm-hmm. birthday he posted a photo on his birthday of a cake apparently his team mm-hmm. or his office had given him mm-hmm. and it was a nice looking chocolate cake and it said happy birthday which i, was I thought was incongruous yeah. in the first place which is as good as umgebotstag but anyway it said happy birthday yeah <laughs> 
Dr. Marcus Soda. And I was like, really? You put your title on your cake, on the cake, right? Oh, okay. It felt like it could only come from subordinates. Yeah. That cake. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I mean, I'm sure there's a rule that only he, as the doctor, is allowed to cut the doctor piece out if anyone without a master's <laughs> attempts that move. That's my. <laughs> they're going to get, they're going to get axed sharpish. <laughs> I'd like to, I like to think he came. He saw the cake and then said, um, "So what about the the hair, Doctor?" I'm diplom. But I like that, Mister Doctor. I was having this conversation with my wife because it's something that comes up at work a lot. Because I still get emails to to Professor mm-hmm. Houghton, which is which is a nice thing to see in writing, but it's kind of it's also a little bit shaming. <laughs> uh, I don't have a PhD. I'm not a professor. <laughs> The thing about it, my wife was like, "Well, if you if you had a doctor title, you'd use it on everything." And I was like, "No, I wouldn't," because like the British the British sensibility yeah. is to like never tell anyone you get a PhD and then never bring it up at any point. Like if you bring up that you're a doctor, then that's a social faux pas of the highest order. No, absolutely not. I mean, it comes off as super needy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, if you're talking to someone and they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm, I'm a doctor of philosophy," for example, it's like, "No, like I I have." My degree is in philosophy, and I wouldn't give a shit. How can I expect anyone that has zero interest in philosophy to care about a PhD in it? I mean, yeah, for a country that's focused on class system, what diploma you have, like what degree you have, what letters after your name is often, it's just showy. But but that's the thing, isn't it? It's one of those deep, ingrained cultural like things that almost you just don't know it until it's presented in, it to you quite boldly. Like, we're brought up to be modest, I think, in Britain, and to not blow our own horns, and people will talk about not showing off, and it's seen as a real negative. That, that, that's not just, like, showing off by going, I'm great at everything, but even to the point of, like, I worked, I've worked really hard for this, but I better not tell anyone because they might feel bad about it. Whereas in Germany, there's none of that. And part of me kind of admires the hair doctor title, but at the same time, we're instinctively going to think someone who, who demands that they're called hair doctor or hair doctor doctor which is quite common in, in germany would be seen as a total twat in britain yeah and there is some evidence that that's that connection is true i mean i think we also run in the opposite direction sometimes in the uk like i mean obviously i don't have an ma uh, like nick does um, <laughs> no, I, feel, I instinctively feel embarrassed that you brought yeah, it up. That so. makes you feel awkward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think if you were forced to talk about it, you'd be like, "Oh, it's it's just an MA in." You wouldn't be like, "Oh, yeah, it's, it's a grand MA and a grand topic." And I think that's, that's something that's very, very natural. I think the only time it ever really got highlighted is when I was picking my my university sort of courses. I had the ability to choose between a BA and a BSc, uh, so a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Science. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of effort from alumnus to be like, yeah, get a BSc because it'll, it'll improve your career prospects. I'm like, it's still a philosophy degree. It's not going to do anything. Um, and yeah, here I am teaching English and podcasting. Woo! But that's exactly <laughs> instinctive to just go, oh, well, mm-hmm. it's not really worth that much. But I think it's worth a lot. I think I think the humanities certainly, but I would say that as a history student, I think it's, it's really valuable because it's the knowledge of the past that helps you understand the present and i think that's clearly really important and in britain at least you see the impact of them ignoring the humanities in the same way you see the impact of them ignoring languages like their languages mm. are shit 
And every time I see anything about British people complaining about wokeism or the British Empire, all of that shit, it it just tells us where the money wasn't spent on like teaching people about their own culture. You know, the people don't really understand mm. it, and they think that everything's an attack because they're not praising how good Britain was in World War Two. You know, which is the only only history that's allowed to be discussed. Um, and same with philosophy. I think you'd be hard pressed to point out modern philosophers in in Britain in a way that in Germany academia seems to be more not at the forefront of society but certainly on chat shows there's so many like certainly during the election I've really appreciated how many mm. chat shows how many politics based chat shows society based chat shows there are in Germany and you'll regularly get academics on there and there's no one no one's like losing their mind it's just an accepted yeah. part of the the culture and there was a really good video of going doing the rounds earlier this week of of a academic talking about the climate crisis and they're talking about Fridays for Future and the protests, the school protests that want they want to start doing again. And the first question he got was, "Could you have become a professor if you had missed every Friday?" And he's like, "Yeah, of course I could have done." You could just see like all these young people were listening to him. He must have been a guy in his mid fifties, really smart, talking about how basically got kids having to protest for their for their future like how disturbing is that there's just these kids like mm. looking at him just like really admiring what he had to say and you're like when do you see that and like you just don't see that in britain with public intellectuals being admired by young people it just isn't it isn't really the case and maybe i'm generalizing i probably am it's sunday morning and i've only had one cup of coffee so. <laughs> but i do feel like you don't really see that that often i mean i guess the closest thing to like a Mod, a living popular philosopher in Britain is Alain de Bottom, and he's written some very good books. Not generally accessible, though, is he, right? I, I think, as it goes, he's by far the most accessible because he's produced some good summaries about like philosophy for everyday life, uh, philosophy for happiness. And so he understands that the modern market isn't interested in necessarily getting into Wittgenstein's Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus or anything like that. Dropping the knowledge! Um, <laughs> There are people that like just like the idea of applying philosophy to their lives to make life better. And he's, he's sort of nailing that gap. But I've never seen him on Question Time. I don't really watch Question Time very much these days. But yeah, those kinds of voices don't get on. You'd see, you'd see Jordan Peterson though, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Like he's the intellectual that you're allowed to watch. It's like some grim, grim figure of like hyper masculinity or whatever it is. I don't know what he is now. I think he's, I don't tend to, I stopped watching him a long time ago, but. Yeah, I, I've avoided um, him as, as much as possible. Uh, I mean, when when you see one of these sort of heralded intellectuals go on the Joe, Rog Joe Rogan podcast, it's normally a bad sign, especially when Joe disagrees with them the whole time. It's like, uh-oh, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> Joe's got a new angle. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing, though. Didn't he start out his, his career lambasting the Canadian government for making a law about the use of people's preferred pronouns and how that was the heralding of communism? And I think that was like six years ago. I'm like, so where's where's mm. the communist dictatorship champ? You know, no one even asks him about it now. It's not even a topic of discussion. They're too busy asking him about his sort of self help books. Yeah, but I mean, this is it. Like North American counter counter intellectualism is basically just throwing like words like communist and socialist at the wall and hoping something it's sticks. The same in Britain, they're still doing uh, it. Aren't Marxist, yeah. of course. Yeah, I mean, it's really sad to see because it wasn't that way a decade no. ago that I remember. Do you not think this is a question for you? Do you not think the philosophers in Britain are actually like mostly comedians? So you have people like Frankie Boyle. He's got a really popular TV show on Channel Four. You got Russell. Howard, he's got a really popular TV show, and he's he's started going more and more into politics and society and what it all means and mm. things like that. There's so many more comedians sort of thinking about those topics. 
So I wonder maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's we've we've really leaned into the British comedy side of things. What do you think? I, I think there is definitely truth in that, especially Frankie Boyle's New World Order. Um, which I guess is in its third season now. Frankie's been cancelled multiple times and come back and, and proven his worth as not only a very funny comedian, but a very insightful man, a beautiful writer mm-hmm. as well. His monologues mm-hmm. are really, really, Bleak, really wonderful. The bleakest crafted. things in the entire world. Oh. <laughs> That's so good. That, 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 res- that works so beautifully for someone like me yeah. especially. But he's also, because of the, the sort of the issues he's had in his past of and the diversity motivations that all these networks have. He does always have a really interesting collection of people to discuss topics, and it isn't just, yeah, white people, um, which is definitely helpful. I mean, you also have people like Miles Jupp, Miles Jupp yeah. uh, who I think is, is is excellent. But I think the the one that we lost, I mean, we mentioned him before, Sean Locke, uh, I think was was someone that's really, really good at that. But I do think Stuart Lee... Yeah, that's uh, a, good, a good example, is, yeah. ...is worth mentioning. Again, it's very dark, very depressing, but that's what it should be uh, with the current state of the world today. If you have someone preaching self-help, everything's going to be fine, happy, clappy nonsense. Mm. Yeah, if it works for you, live in your little bubble of of ignorance. Uh, I'm trying to think of a better way of describing that without sounding like a complete harsh dick about it. But the world is not in a good state of affairs, and it's the correct reaction shouldn't be like, oh, yeah flowers and fairies and mother earth and all that kind of shit like the world's on fire everything's on fire and it's not fine <laughs> like, i just i couldn't i just can't help but think you know like it's all the things all the problems that we have are fairly obvious problems but we spend all this time like fucking bickering about them and you end up with this just people just want to get escapism everyone's wanting to escape something and like oh like i just watch this because it, it's because it's I don't have to think about it or mm-hmm. I don't have to think about this thing or and I feel that all all the time as well I can only see past the end of my nose like I can only see to the end of the week sometimes or even like two days ahead of me I think the escapism's fine I, and it's an understandable reaction to the reality that we face but the issue is that if if that is your motivation if if that's what you want to do just like escape into whatever hobby or or belief, then you you also can't turn around and tell people they're wrong. And this is the, the issue we see. Like Everyone is tucking themselves away in, in comfort blankets, but then as soon as someone criticizes anything that's even vaguely not aligned with their beliefs, everyone becomes so caustic and just unpleasant. It's, it's, really, it's, it's horrible to see. It's terrible for my blood pressure. It'd be much better if we were all just accepting or not pretending. I, I don't get it that much because... Because I'm not a target for people's like online attacks, but I'll write stuff about things, and people just take it totally out of context. Like mm. the, the thing, I mean, this is something I hate the most. But like people who comment but haven't read what I've written, they'll just yeah. comment on the tweet. That's really infuriating because you just like, well, engage with, engage or don't engage, but don't just comment for the sake of comment. And mm. but like a lot of people will just do that, and it's really obvious as well. Like people. There's there's a few different types that you'll get, especially when you put stuff out there, and we don't get much for for this because people just seem to enjoy it, which is lovely, which is great. But when you write stuff, I think it's a little bit different. Uh, people feel like I don't know if they feel like they want to show their knowledge as well, which is perfectly fine. But mm-hmm. people will often go, "Oh, this this cultural thing is because of this," and I'm like. Well, like I've put that in, I've commented on that in the article, and you've just not 
Mm. You've not read it. So it's like you see a lot of, and when you do write stuff and put it out there, I think you do see a lot of people who just want to flex in the comments. Yeah. They don't actually want to engage. And I think it's only through engagement and discussion that you get anywhere. Even engaging and discussing stuff that you don't necessarily feel, yeah, you don't really want to talk about necessarily, but I think it's really important to do that. But I feel like there is there is some level of that in Germany, whereas there is just seems like a lot of escapism. In fact, like Russell Howard, who we talked about just a moment ago, mm-hmm. he, he said something that always made me laugh about like television. He said television's just become like like kids entertainment for adults. And it's like, do you want to do some baking? Do you want to do some dancing? <laughs> like, do you want to go to a beach? Like what? What happens when we eat this? And it's like that's what it, like sort of, and I, I, like, and it sounds like I'm being elitist, and I suppose I kind of am to a certain extent. But I do think there is a hell of a lot of dribbly shit, like pumped out that people just like. It's just like like a sort of anaesthetic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, all light entertainment. You mentioned dancing, strictly those kinds mm-hmm. of things. It is an anaesthesia. Like, it's not designed to provoke. It's just an hour where you can switch off mm-hmm. and ignore what's actually happening. And of course, you have these sort of soap opera shows, and some of them are really integral to British culture, like Coronation Street, Emma Dale, EastEnders. These are daily escapes um, that allow you to feel better because these people are completely fucked, whereas you're only marginally fucked. But it used to be the case that it was an hour of your day, and that was it. Now it's like your entire week because you've got blasting on social media the news is constantly reporting on it like the bake the bake-off is a nice tv show about making cakes Mm -hmm. it's perfectly pleasant lovely tv show but the amount of the amount of content it generates it's like a a drop a a stone dropped in a puddle there's just ripples of content Mm. and it just takes over and you're just like jesus man they're just making fucking cakes it's not like why do you need to have like minute by minute assessments of it and like review each episode and and it's because obviously people will click on it, but that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's just needless content. And it feels like it distracts from the larger issues that we have because it is just like, it's not just an hour where you phase out. It's like several hours over a week where you just zone out reading some dirge about Love Island. or And a lot of these shows have like the after show Oh, God, as yeah, well. man. So Bake Off has an hour after. Which, is it Joe Brand who hosts it? Is she still hosting that? I can't, can't she used say. To. I've never watched I it. I know that, yeah. But then they have like people come on and like evaluate what has just happened. Um, sort of play-by-play bake-off uh, is definitely a, a niche audience. But people are into it. And we see on social media, people have got very good at baking cakes. And I'm fine with that. Like, that's, it's a perfectly good hobby. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think maybe people need better hobbies uh, than TV. Do you want to actually know what the most popular hobbies in Germany and the UK are? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you'd be quite surprised. I was a bit surprised by the German one. So I looked it up and it was, this is from Statista. And I was like, Statista, I'm always a little bit, I'm never 100% on. Between 2019 and 2021, which I appreciate is uh, when the pandemic's basically been Mm -hmm. on as well. But the, the most popular hobby is is gardening. Oh, it's not masturbating then. No, it's not. <laughs> Surprisingly, it's not. The most popular hobby is is, is gardening and has been for the last how three years. How can that be true, though? Like, Don't ask me. How many? What percentage of people in Germany and the UK have their own garden? Well, it's different for the UK. In Germany, it's gardening. In, in the UK, it's music. It's music? Really? Everyone wants to be a pop star. You've got football <laughs> and you've got stuff like that. But again, this is a... 
I think this is a Statista one as well. And it was saying, yeah, it's music's the top one. Is it playing music or listening to music? I didn't say, didn't say at all. It just mus- mm. music, full stop. It stinks of panic when, like, been teaching English for for ages. And one of the questions I always try to stop people asking is, what are your hobbies? Because it's something you learn when you're learning English. But it's a terrible fucking question because everybody panics. Um, because most people's real hobbies, mine are drinking tea, playing computer games and watching TV. And those aren't really positive hobbies I want to sell. Um, so I think if somebody asked me, what's your hobby? I'd be like, music! And just <laughs> hoping that worked. And I think a lot of British people fall into that that panic trap as well. Well, I mean, playing video games is on there. Gaming, I think, was something like 30% of people said that. But you've got like working out, um, home improvement, reading, gardening, baking running that kind of stuff is quite common but again like home improvement if if home improvement is really your hobby like how long can you actually do that for in hours before you run out of things to improve maybe it's like the fourth bridge you know once they finished painting it they started again <laughs> so once you've finished doing your house up it's about like 10 years have gone by so it's time to redo it again get the mdf out it's a re-shingle the roof Pat. <laughs> but yeah so i mean britons enjoy gardening that's that's what we know but germans also seem to enjoy that and i think that's quite a, a wholesome kind of uh activity but i'll give you some other ones that are interesting from germany going on the internet social networking is very popular i think that's around about uh, number two You've got shopping it's number three and i think actually number four was what the call this took me a while to work out because i couldn't work out the translate translation Rätsellösen, like puzzle solving. Genau, right? And I was like, like cr- is it crosswords and puzzles and yeah, yeah. Jigsaws? So like like word puzzles and stuff, and that's quite high up the up the list. And I was like, wow, like that's an interesting one. Like it's not yeah. it's not one that's on the British list at all. But Sudoku, I wouldn't have thought. I guess would be included in that. Yeah. Things like that, yeah, yeah. And so that's a really popular hobby. Whereas as I was assuming, and this is this is the funny thing, I was sort of assuming the British would be more sedentary, so it would be more like sort of watching TV, watching movies. But it wasn't. It was quite active. Both countries really like walking. Mm-hmm. Uh, walking's a big one. Wandern auf Deutsch. It's certainly in Bavaria is seen as like the best hobbies you can have. Mm. In Britain it is as well. I've read something. Like in Germany you sort of climb things or you walk to a point. Mm-hmm. But in Britain, you'll often just go for a walk for the sake of the walk, and it has no real destination, and you just sort of walk. And I've heard a lot of criticism of that approach because it seems so, like, pointless. I think, yeah, it's quite fun, isn't it? It's just, like, sort of going for a wander around, see what's what. Yeah, I mean... That kind of thing. The English word I always like to use is rambling, to go for a little ramble. And I say there's no fixed anything attached to that really like you have a general area you want to walk around but go left go right doesn't matter um the formality of a of a of a german wanderung um mm. can be a bit restricting sometimes because yeah look over there look at that that's nice what's that uh, i think those are perfectly yeah. sensible Don't emotions go the path. to feel exactly <laughs> There's lots of other hobbies that we could maybe introduce from Britain and into Germany. I don't know. We've got a, a couple here. Though Simon's done some research and found a couple of hobbies. Go on then, Simon. What what are the hobbies you think that could be introduced from Britain to Germany? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've kind of focused on sport. There's a couple of others that aren't sport related, but these are quite physical activities because, yeah, physical activities are definitely to be encouraged and obviously there are, there are levels to this we're not going to recommend everyone gets into like mma and boxing but uh <laughs> yeah, go on join mma see how it goes <laughs> let's do some brazilian jiu-jitsu it is a growing thing in germany to be credit to give them credit 
But I mean, there are some sports that are massive in the UK and around the world that just aren't really very well represented or, or even cared about at all. And we're going to start with the one that's the hardest to explain, and that's cricket. Um, yeah, I mean, if you can explain that to me, that'll be helpful because I still don't understand the rules. Really? No, I have no. I actually, I'll be honest. I don't. I don't really want to know the rules. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, cricket's tainted by this, this reputation of everyone like references test cricket. Uh-huh. Like, oh, you can play for five days and nobody wins. It's like, yeah, that, that's that's how it used to be and how it still is sometimes. But there are really dynamic forms of cricket these days. Like if you look at um, 2020, it's someone trying to hit a ball as hard as possible for the whole time. And I applaud that. And it's massive uh, in India, especially, of course. But yeah, in cricket in Germany, is it's not really big. But it does have history here. There is a sort of a connection. There is a German cr- cricket federation, right? There is, yeah. All right, tell me all about it. Their numbers aren't huge. So, I mean, it started actually as, as late back as 1858. Really? That far yeah. back? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been around a while. But, of course, this was a team. It was basically an expat team. It was uh, English and Americans. And they founded the first German cricket club in Berlin. And then there was small military groups that played like a lot of the the british uh, soldiers would play but then in the 1980s a lot of german universities started playing i guess this is like an aspirational high class like oh yeah look at these very clever people that play cricket and so it grew in german universities in the 80s do you reckon do you reckon it grew it grew out of the fact that they were like maybe we should stop having dueling clubs that they seem to have that <laughs> yeah. like, i can't believe they exist like these dueling clubs where the Let's say a mark of pride is to have a dueling scar on your face, like you're some kind of bad guy from a World War One fighter plane movie or something. <laughs> Just like, what the fuck are you doing? But yeah, it's a but it's a it's a very it's a posh sport in in the in the UK. I would I would say as well. So. I mean, yeah, it is essentially. But I mean, it's also a sport that has very little barrier to entry. The cost of joining a cricket club and getting the equipment you need is is easily less than 100 euros mm-hmm. so i think that's that's pretty cool you get to wear white which is very nice in the summer <laughs> and it's i mean it is growing because one of the, this is one of the sort of the benefits that's coming from the amount of uh, people from afghanistan and pakistan uh, coming into germany i mean these cultures they love cricket mm-hmm. and, and so yeah we are seeing more and more cricket clubs develop and it's a great way to it's a very social sport, which I think is ignored because if you're the batting team, there's only two of your team who are out on the pitch. And so you're hanging out with the other nine dudes uh, or ladies. It's, it's for everyone. And so there is a nice social element. There's tea and sandwiches uh, if it's done in the British way, which is nice. I do like the idea of the stop for tea, I find that. Yeah, it's nice. It's a nice summer activity. The weather's good. You're standing outside. You're getting fresh air. You're getting some exercise as well. It's not high intensity. So if your knees aren't great or your hips aren't great, it's a sport that you can still enjoy. And if you want, if you're batting, it's basically shoulders and a little bit of hip movement. So it's good for mobility as well. Now, of course, someone is throwing a ball at you that's very, very hard, very, very fast. So there is that's danger. Like a really hard leather ball. <laughs> it is rocketing tough. at you. And yeah. yeah, there are people who are who are dicks about it and will aim for your head. Uh, there are rules about that, but it it is a sport that is has the potential to be very very good because you don't have to be big or strong or anything like any size shape gender can play cricket and have a good time doing it and so you mentioned it there is the 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 german cricket federation the deutsche Cricketbund, uh, and they were founded in 88 1988 so a relatively new thing Mm -hmm. Uh, and in 2016 there were about 220 cricket teams in the country 
up from 70 in 2012. So it is it's growing and growing fast. Hopefully there'll be 400, 500 cricket teams in the next few years. And it's also good for Corona. There's a lot of social distancing in cricket. Oh, yeah, yeah, because especially for the fielding team. I was just oh. thinking, it's like it, 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 I can see it now that Germany's going to join the fine tradition of countries that have imported a British sport become much better at it than us and then defeat us ritually. <laughs> humiliatingly regular basis well, I mean this is a strong motivation for Commonwealth countries <laughs> <I'm> sure <laughs> okay so cricket's one what what, yeah. what else have we got what are the hobbies so the next very English sport is rugby and now obviously rugby is a sport that has a lot a lot more awareness because a lot of a lot of Germans really love American football and so there's always that contrast argument like what's better oh I'm going to talk about rugby union people who like rugby will know there's rugby league there's rugby sevens and there's rugby union the three main directions but rugby union in Germany is is a very minor sport and I think at latest count there's there's less than 125 men's clubs and only five women's clubs right. um, in four men's and one women's national leagues and this is really the big downside of people that want to play rugby in the in Germany. So, I mean, obviously we have a lot of South Africans, Australians, mm. English, Welsh, Scottish who who come over here and want to play rugby. And you can get involved in a club in your town, uh, definitely in a city. But the downside is if you're, for example, at Nuremberg, you'll have to go and play in Berlin once in a while. So it does, it strips away your entire weekend because there isn't enough regional teams to play on a regular mm. basis so that's mm. the big downside really um but yeah 2017 there were over 12,000 players registered with the german rugby federation it's, it's a good number i love rugby so so much it's it's an incredible sport especially for young people because it is it is a dangerous sport there is a lot of physicality there's a lot of injuries that will come with it but it taught me a huge amount about teamwork um about resilience your, your rugby team is only as good as your worst player uh, because that player is going to be targeted by the opposition if they know what they're doing. So yeah, you have to support one another. If there is someone who, on your team who isn't the best, you, they need help. And I think that's a very positive element to teamwork, where it's not just like, I'm going to kick everyone's ass. I'm like, rugby's messy and I'm going to win this. That doesn't work. And so we are seeing a few German players coming up through the system and being successful now. So they can't be successful in Germany. There just isn't the infrastructure. There isn't the team network. So they'll obviously end up in France. Uh, because it's just over the border, or England. Uh, so we have Robert Moore, uh, who's playing at La Rochelle at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, and Sasha Fischer uh, at Perrieu, uh in France as well. So you've got a couple of German players who, who are doing mm-hmm. well. Um, but yeah, they don't have the same support as as the French or the, or the English or anyone in the home nations. But yeah, if, you're, if you like American football, do rugby. It's much better. Uh, it's much safer as well, weirdly, even though you're wearing less protection. The amount of injuries and CTE is is a lot lower. Yeah, I mean you're not diving head first into people, so that's that's a good. Hopefully a good not. Start. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you're doing it right, you shouldn't be um, last, last ditch tackles. I mean, I played rugby as well at a much lower level. I was I was never, I was not a good rugby player. I wasn't a skillful rugby player. I was just big and I could move and I could hit things, and essentially that was my role was. As he said, to back people up, that's exactly what I did. I just uh, charge into people and knock them off the ball or clear people out so other people could get the ball. That was really my function. I enjoyed it. I loved it. I think it's a great sport. I did find... I did, and It's something that I didn't miss. I, I didn't really miss after I finished playing was the kind of culture 
that had developed around around rugby. We didn't have it so much at school, but I, w- I was rem- reminded of it, and it's very sort of university rugby mm-hmm. culture. Uh, when I think it was a while ago, we went. I'm not sure if you were there, but we went for a few beers this co- good couple of years ago, and I think it was the Nuremberg team mm-hmm. was in a bar, and they were doing. They were just fucking really loud, really loud, yeah. obnoxious, really sort of in your face. And there were like, I, I think there was, there's an element of it that's people, because you've got a mixed groups. So you've got young people, older people, and certainly the older guys were kind of the, the, the 80s, 90s rugby culture of like, drink a pint, vomit into the pint, drink the pint again, that kind yeah. of thing, which is just like, for me, it's just a massive turn off. And uh, that sort of people say lardish culture, but it's such a culture of like bullying. Like I don't want to drink a pint mm. of sick. That's rank as fuck. I don't have to prove my manliness to a group of like Neanderthals. But the and that was the the sort of thing. But you had like the 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 German lads who were mimicking sort of the British. And you had them all doing like dropping pennies in each other's pints and shouting like "God save the Queen" and everyone had to down the beer and. Oh, just I just don't like it's just it's annoying and so it's just it's one of those shitty British culture aspects that you, it seems so out of place in Germany and it's like again it's something that we've talked about a few times is where you want like a German culture to develop around it don't like mm. just adopt sh- the shitty examples you have in Britain like if you want to get pissed get pissed don't make an excuse of getting pissed <laughs> like to at least own it right that's how I see it but it's like that kind of blokey hyper masculine bullshit that just irritates us you you very much nailed the one of the two things that's bad about rugby the culture that goes with it is hyper toxic masculinity a lot mm-hmm. of the time um and the other is how dangerous it is like the yeah. injuries um, you if you play for a year you are going to get injured uh, so you do need to have decent assurance, I guess, in Germany to play it at, um, at on a regular level. Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, my, we talked last week about my knees clicking, and it's mm-hmm. exactly because of rugby that my knees have a, a very disconcerting click in the cold weather. But mm. um, but yeah, I would give it a try. I think it's worth worthwhile. I don't think every team's like that. One of our listeners, Maurizio, plays rugby, and he's described his rugby team to me and almost got me to join. If it wasn't for my my dicky knee, I would definitely have joined. But his description was it just sounded like just like a nice group of lads meeting up, doing some training, playing some rugby. One of the options that exists as well is is touch rugby or flag rugby, mm-hmm. uh, two mm-hmm. variations where there's no real hit, there's no real physical contact. There, of course, there is some shoulder to shoulder, like you will every now and again by accident get hit, but there isn't the intention uh, to try and tackle someone vigorously. And so, yeah, those are definitely growing in popularity because they're really good for, let's say, teamwork, for agility, especially. Mm-hmm. Rugby is a very, very good uh, game for learning about agility. It's not a sport that you can turn up on week one and have a good time because you mm-hmm. need to get used to the contact. Uh, the rules aren't yeah. the easiest if you've never played it. It sounds massively cliched. It may, part of it is what made me the man I am today. <laughs> no, I think that's true. I think, I think team sports really do that. I, I, I totally agree with you on that front. But I have something next that's a lot more gender-neutral a lot safer and a lot fewer injuries, which I guess is good. Tell me then about this mystery sport. This is one that I was actually reminded of uh, on Twitter yesterday uh, by uh, at Catalyst. So thanks for that. Um, that's the sport of netball. Uh, oh, netball right. is is a, a hugely popular sport all over the world. More than twenty million people 
apparently play netball but basically none of them live in germany it's, it's really not it's not a big sport here you'd be hard pressed apparently even to find a german who even knows what netball is but it is it's often described as this like classic commonwealth game because it was invented in in england uh, like <laughs> pretty much all sports hey hey um, hey slow down <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah an underground of, sort of expat teams is, is growing uh, mm. in germany so obviously berlin is 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 ground zero for these teams because that's where the majority of expats are it's a good sport it's it's a really it's, it's a it's a very intellectual sport compared to others as well people look at it and assume it's like basketball light and i think that's the sort of the downside um that people make that immediate assumption because there's a lot of strategy and a lot of technique that's got to be learned to be successful and one of the real nice things about netball is it can be played mixed gender with mm. zero problems at all your physicality obviously the taller you are you do have an advantage there but it isn't a huge advantage uh, compared to other sports uh, so yeah i think this is great a good way to meet other expats if you're looking for a sport to play um that's low contact not dangerous really i mean maybe you'll end up with a bloody nose once in a while mm. but it is it's a safe sport to play and yeah it's very friendly full of people from all over the world who really really like it who maybe aren't finding it very easy to make friends in Germany. So yeah, netball is, is definitely a good shout. So thanks for that catalyst. Yeah, it seems like it. Maybe there's only there's only room for they've got handball, there's only room for 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 one handball based game. Well, there is no netball team in Nuremberg that I could find. So yeah. maybe next summer I'll be starting. Found one. Found <laughs> exactly. one. Found one. Okay, so we're talking about sports we could introduce or certainly have some growth in Germany but this the, the, the next two are interesting because certainly the next one snooker is yeah. one that I see pool halls all over mm. Germany all the time but I, now I'm thinking about it I'm wondering have I, have I actually seen a snooker hall or have I only seen pool halls I don't think I've seen a snooker hall pool is super dominant uh, I mm. do know uh, from uh, Stuart's dad Ebby was saying that there is a new location for a snooker to be played but it sounded from his description like it's on the third floor of an office block or something weird probably will be just like the dentist <laughs> so yeah it's not got the the location that you i mean i guess if you're going to start a business and you've got the choice between a pool hall and a snooker hall pool hall makes more sense because more people play it and the tables are smaller so you can get more in a room <laughs> i guess that's the big benefit but snooker is a hugely popular sport all over the world it's great to watch, especially on TV, because it's kind of hypnotic. It's very relaxing. Mm -hmm. But there's some interesting stories about its integration into Germany. And we have one here about uh, Steve Davis, mm -hmm. uh, who anyone that likes snooker will know already is six-time world champion. And his first exhibition was in Germany over 30 years ago. And he's got a really nice quote about it. Uh, so, quote, the first time I came out here uh, was in the 1980s to Hamburg, a club called Greens, which was ahead of its time. I did some trick shots live on German TV, a sort of Jonathan Rostal show, and what they struggled to get their heads around was that I was making a living from it. When you first go to a country, the knowledge and application isn't there, and people burst into rapturous applause from the break-off shots. But even by the end of the match, they weren't doing that anymore. There was a quick learning curve. I think that's a really nice insight into Snooky. You, sort of, you see the drama of balls being split, and you're like, oh my God, it's amazing! But then it ticks over and you see the skill and the precision and, and the forethought required mm. to play snooker well. A very good pool player does not make a good snooker player. They, there are massive differences between them, even if they look very similar. 
my pool game is, is pretty decent, but I suck at snooker. Uh, the scale and the challenge is so much harder. So if you like pool, level up. Give snooker a go if you can find a place that's not in Hamburg. <laughs> I, I was sort of, we were sort of brought up, I guess, on for, with Grandstand on BBC. Mm-hmm. And they'd have bowls and they'd have snooker. Benson and Hedges, um, snooker tournaments, and they'd yep. be drinking pints and smoking cigarettes on the sidelines and... I remember that from the late late 80s, early 90s for sure at my grandparents' house. I was trying to think of a potential like major German snooker star because they come from all... I've seen Chinese snooker, snooker stars, Swedish snooker stars, uh, French even, um, certainly definitely Irish, Scottish, English, Welsh, that kind of thing. But Americans, maybe not so much. But Yeah, but, Paul is their focus for sure yeah, in America. Yeah, Never seen a... Never seen a um, a German snooker star, but there must be some out there. There are some players that have definitely got to the highest level. Uh, so we have uh, Sasha Lipper uh, and Lasse Munstermann, uh, both of whom played on the World Snooker Tour. Um, and there is uh, Einsler, um, who is a current professional. But there is a hope coming from Essen in Lucas Kleckers. He's only, uh, I think, 17 at the moment, very young lad. But there is a chance for him to, to achieve big things in terms of being the German snooker star. So he's already the national champion and he's practicing hard, but you can't live in Germany and be the best in the world at snooker. So he's going to have to move to England uh, at some point and live there. Um, And yeah, at the moment he's a young player, good player, biggest fish in a very, very small pond. And if he does go to England, he'll be a small fish in a very, very big pond. Mm. Um, So yeah, he's going to have to keep plugging away. But yeah, there is is some hope for the future of German snooker. And of course, if you do get a superstar uh, like Lucas might be one day, then there's every chance that that Germany will support it. Because even in the time of Ronnie O'Sullivan, um, Germans would go and watch snooker and they would support Ronnie O'Sullivan over the German because Mm. Ronnie is cool and a great player. Uh, there isn't that that sort of national uh, connection that's required yet because they don't have that many options. So maybe Lucas has a chance to become the great hope of, of, of German snooker, Shamamal. Yeah, the the other the other sport is one that I think is doing quite well. It, that's massive I, here now, really. But it's it's it up. <laughs> yeah, it starts, and I see I see um, a lot of like you'll drive through um, German villages around here, and a lot of people will have a dartboard in the garden or you'll see them in the garages a lot of people play darts it's just a mindless hobby but there's loads of darts darts teams we've got a very good friend who is is a big darts player goes around the country playing darts so i know it's a really popular sport here again barrier to entry is like 15 euros you can buy a cheap board and your first set of arrows for for next to nothing and a lot of pubs, especially Irish pubs, will have one if your friend doesn't have one in their garden. So, yeah, it's, it's really growing now. The German Darts Championship only started in 2007. And uh, so it is it's really growing really, really rapidly now. And it's now more and more common that we're seeing the PDC events in Germany. Um, Berlin joined the Premier League circuit from 2018. The World Cup has been held in Hamburg and Frankfurt. Euro Tour happens here. World Series events happen. And thousands of Germans travel to Ali Pali every year to go and watch the darts in the home of darts. And I think this is one of the, the most interesting things about it as a sport. You don't have to be good at darts to love it 
in a really sort of passionate way. Talent is no barrier to enjoyment because the culture of darts, especially in Ali Pali, is it's like carnival. It's like a kiva. Um, everyone gets drunk. Everyone does costumes. There's singing. There's dancing. There's it's a really it's the opposite of cricket. Ali Pali's short for something, right? It is. Sorry, uh, Alexandra Palace, oh, okay. uh, which is the home uh, of darts in the UK, and the. You just have to watch it for 10 minutes and you'll be like, okay, everyone is having the time of their lives. Uh, everyone's enjoying themselves. And we have seen a couple of players from Germany do do really well recently. Max Hopp, Martin Schindler, Gabriel Clemens, and there's a Nico Kurtz uh, is also a rising star at the moment. So we are seeing Germans doing well at it. And yeah, I think the trend is, is, is certainly only up. I think we're going to see more and more local teams. It's a great social sport. It's a lot of fun. For me, the only real problem with it is mental arithmetic, which I suck at. <laughs> yeah, that's, my, that's the barrier to entry for me, just here. Yeah. <laughs> if you are starting a new hobby, try and pick one that's not massively dangerous without even realizing it. One of the things that's amazing about British press and the NHS is they release a lot of information about the injuries that have been sustained by people throughout the year. It might not be as dramatic as the Australians with how many shark bites and things like that, but there's some mad shit that went down in lockdown hobbying. So let's get into this. Some of the key issues. Uh, cooking is, of course, risky if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, a lot of flame, a lot of hot oils and the like. Nick, you've done a shit ton of DIY this year, moving into your new digs. Any injuries? No, I managed to avoid any oh. horrific injuries, thank God. Such a professional. Um, no, it's just that I tend to stay away from the most dangerous power tools. Um, uh, this is smart, this is smart. I used I used a circular saw, that was pretty fun, but every second I was using it, I was fully aware that this could be the day that I die. So um, just just being very careful. I mean, I, I bashed my thumb a couple of times with a hammer, but I mean, everyone does that, right? Well, you're not alone. You're not alone at all. So... 2,700 people were admitted uh, after an accident with a non-powered hand tool in the UK, such as a hammer or a saw. So it's not, it's not many, 2,700. I think that's pretty good. Nearly double that, 5,600. I had to go to hospital after a powered hand tool. So you are right to be wary of that lovely Makita sitting in its box. That shit can tear your hand off in no time. Yeah, I mean, you've got to respect the power tools. I just totally. I love the idea that I mean, there's something quite positive in the story of, of like, oh, we're in lockdown. Right, I'm going to put up the shelves. Let's mm -hmm. do this. Like, let's DIY our way out of it. Uh, and I kind of enjoy that. But it is also, at the same time, unsurprising. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so many people have, have caused themselves a bit of damage due to misuse of power tools or even non-powered tools. But it's not the only thing that was injuring people, right? I mean, the other thing we, we both started doing this year is, is mowing lawns. Uh, and there's a part of me that's absolutely terrified that I want to like run over my foot and cut off <laughs> my toes and stuff. And yet, 349 people did something along those lines in the UK, injuring themselves with lawnmowers, which is like a, a terrifying moment. I just, I just think of Point Break every time with Keanu Reeves having his face like pushed ever closer to those Ooh. spinning blades. It wasn't the cause? <laughs> yeah, if that's the cause, then oh my good god, <laughs> you're doing gardening wrong. <laughs> But of course, gardens can often contain playground equipment as well. Maybe a swing, maybe a slide if you're a luxury family. And yeah, 5,300 people fell off playground equipment, which is quite a few. 
Uh, the average age, nine and a half years old. So watch out, kids. It's dangerous out there. Wonderfully, though, eight people were over the age of 90. <laughs> I love that statistic. I love that so much. People over the yeah. age of 90 were just looking in the car and going, I could do those monkey bars. <laughs> Give me a crack at those. Get out of the way, Callum. I'm doing this slide. <laughs> no, okay. Lucas, move over. It's my time to shine. <laughs> it's it's funny because it's one of those, you can imagine what happened. You've got someone looking out the window going, oh, I'm fucking so bored of lockdown. Tell you what, <laughs> that slide looks like a laugh. <laughs> Ruth, you're 92. Get off it. <laughs> Fuck off. Uh, fuck off, you <laughs> prick. Uh, yeah. As I was reading that sentence, I kind of thought that it would be people doing, like, in the park, doing exercise, because people mm-hmm. do use, like, kids' climbing frames for bodyweight exercises. I've heard that is a thing. And so I imagined that. But, yeah, I guess I guess the average age of the, of the people injured was being nine and a half seems yeah. about right. There's some pissed-up teenagers in that category, for sure. <laughs> Bottle of white lightning and a swing. Yeah, it's all going wrong. The other stat I liked was that the 962 people were treated in hospital for injuries sustained while climbing trees, which suggests that Britain might have gone back to some, like, halcyon <laughs> 1920s schoolboy <laughs> antics kind of Enid Blyton shtick where they're, like, scrumping for apples and... <laughs> stealing into Farmer Giles's field to steal his carrots. I don't know uh, what you do, but uh, it's just, it made me laugh. Just all these people just going, I could climb that tree and falling out. Average age of that group, I'm going to guess 42. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to the sort of DIY aspect, I feel like DIY, as I've mentioned, is a chore and it's not an enjoyable experience. So I don't do it with any level of enthusiasm or extravagance. Whereas I think someone who's gone out. Mm. bought themselves a jigsaw or some kind of i don't know some kind of electric sander or something <laughs> who might be a little bit more motivated than i might maybe take on a, a bigger challenge and therefore cause themselves a larger injury uh whereas i would just avoid it out of pure laziness and dislike for the practice i mean you have to also think that a lot of these people don't have the right clothing and if they were germans they'd have exactly mm. the right outfit they'd have their uh strauss dungarees ready to go with the right Indeed. color code depending on the job they're doing yeah preparation is key you fools i mean it wasn't just power tools and climbing frames that were catching people out though there was no. some other quite funny ones as well including what they've described as a a pet boom pet boom it is a boom 3.2 million households added a pet uh during the pandemic which that's a lot of lot of pets that's, that's a lot of animals all of them are dogs and cats right no and not all of them were good boys <laughs> Yeah, 7,386 were in hospital uh, after being bitten or struck by a dog. Struck by a uh, dog. <laughs> I really enjoyed that verb. Just, <laughs> what happened? He struck me. <laughs> I would say the dog backhanded me. He didn't even take off his sovereign ring. Um, yeah, it's wild, that. I mean, yeah. I mean, my wife and I we talked about getting a dog and then we decided to have a baby instead. Um, no, that's not how, that was not how, how events transpired. Uh, but like, I think having it, I thought it was a quite preposterous idea to get a dog during lockdown, given that everyone was in lockdown. But I guess at the same time, one of the, especially for those people who were in quite severe lockdowns like we were in Bayern, one of the only ways you could get out the house regularly mm-hmm. was if you owned a dog. So it makes sense that people might buy a dog because they have to be walked and therefore you would get a little bit more exercise. Uh, that doesn't explain, though, the 47 <laughs> people suffering rat, rat bites. 
Yes, rat bites. Bites from rats. And this is rat bites to the point of hospitalization or hospital visits. Exactly. That's a bad rat bite. That's pretty bad. But then there's... <sighs> what's the other statistic that we have about weird pets? Yeah, 60 people got bitten by venomous spiders. <laughs> I mean, we talked about this a few episodes ago, and there is one in Baden-Württemberg spreading through the southwest. Don't remind me. <laughs> the Nosferatu spider was the safe one. Uh, it was the yellow sack spider. There we go. That's recall. Um, so, yeah, how many of those were this bite? We don't know. Who's fucking with venomous spiders, man? You'd like... If you... For me... If you get bitten by a venomous spider, that that's on you. Like we don't. If have you own any. it, it's yeah. absolutely on you. Totally yeah. on you. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't get treated, but I don't. You're not getting any sympathy. <laughs> scorpions get sympathy. <laughs> well, no. The four the four people who were admitted after coming into contact with scorpions also seems quite improbable. I get seeing in a scorpion in some kind of I don't know zoo or something. But who's looking at a scorpion going, what I want is one of those in a tank in my house. I'm going to call it Gary, and it's going to be my friend. Like, no, it's a fucking scorpion. You've not heard the proverb about the scorpion and the frog. Like The whole point of the scorpion is all it does sting things and eats them mm-hmm. that's its purpose of existence. Like it's a, fine, it's a fine beast, I'm sure, but yeah, what are you going to do? It just seems like a lot of edgelords buying edgelord yeah. uh, pets. Yeah, there are no like good boy scorpions. There, there are just there are no good or bad. They are just scorpions. In fairness, though, a scorpion won't strike you like a dog. <laughs> I think a scorpion does strike in weight. At least has the decency to take its rings off first. Yeah, this is true. This is true. So yeah, animals, playground equipment, and I mean, yeah, we mentioned already cooking skills. Two thousand two hundred forty-three people in the UK ended up in hospital after contact with hot drinks, food, fats, and cooking oils. I <laughs> love that hot drinks. Yeah, still, is that still a problem for us? This drink my is hot. It's too hot. <laughs> I spilt it in my lap. And uh, tr- true to form, sunburn was an issue. <laughs> and every single one of these was from Newcastle or Scotland. <laughs> Just, yeah. 153 people had to go to hospital for sunburn. How bad? I've had bad sunburn, but I've never thought about going to the hospital. I've had some pretty horrific sunburn, as you'd expect, but being a pale-faced northerner. so uh, One of the things that amazes us, though, about this is is how much of this data that we get from the NHS, mm-hmm. because the NHS is a, a single system, and all the data is centralized. And it's actually a big topic of conversation because it costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. The data that the data like this is released quite often as kind of a jokey article, or it's used as an example of like waste in the NHS, mm-hmm. or, or like certainly when they use the data t- towards like people who've gone to accident and emergency when they didn't need to, mm-hmm. or people who've got drunk on a night out. And it's often used as a, as a, as a kind of way of not quite directly criticizing the NHS, but sort of criticizing people who use mm-hmm. it and, and waste and things like that but just i find it really interesting that there's how much of this data that we have and that how actually valuable yeah. it is and i came across an article that i'd forgotten about last year where there was an attempt to basically scrape 55 million was it 55 yeah i think it was 55 million patients data from the nhs and sell that data to private mm-hmm. companies and it was stopped luckily but that's kind of the thing we're talking about. The, the NHS has the largest collection of patient data in the world. The only other country that's comparable is South Korea. Okay. And it's really, really valuable data. And companies like Google want that data because they can do really good things for medicine. Mm. 
but at the same time they make a lot of money out of that those data sets well, i mean this so, is gold for insurance companies as well and risk assessors uh yeah, all that is, stuff yeah but so it, it, it's actually a funny one uh how these stories also speak to a larger a larger point about about the nhs and about data and about the collection of data that being said the story that we missed over christmas <laughs> I'm not quite sure how that fits into the narrative of data collection, how it but it fits was in. Right, right. Mm, yeah, you can see where we're going. So, Simon, tell us about this this quite quite bizarre story that comes out of the uh, the National Health Service in the UK. I mean, yeah, we're not one to judge people, but some stories are just funny. And if you if your thing is to collect World War Two stuff, it's fine. You do you. It's a weird thing to one in your house, but okay. Um, but this was a story that I've put in like five scripts now, hoping we'd talk about it. And we've Nick's managed to to guide me in a different direction. But yeah, headline of this is bomb squad are called to A and E accident emergency where patient turned up with two inch wide WW2 shell lodged in his rectum which got there when he, quote, slipped and fell on it during a clear-out. It's the worst excuse. It's the worst excuse I've ever heard. No one believes that excuse, although, like, credit for giving that excuse. But, yeah, why has he got a condom on it, and why is there lube all over your bumhole? Uh... <laughs> Was the condom on it? No, but I, I, I'm... A, I'm a... <laughs> I think that is quite like a common that... thing. <laughs> I like the idea that if it was a German who who had gone to hospital with the same predicament and they just went, I like to stick munitions on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Matt Rafakli. <laughs> yeah, tripping and falling is, is, is a very cute response to get out of this. Uh, so yeah, he the army were called in <laughs> because of course doctors aren't trained <laughs> in this. Um, and yeah, medics call for specialist support uh, after he uh, arrived at the Gloucester, uh, sorry, the Gloucestershire Royal Hospital in Gloucester. Uh, went 57 millimeter shell, could not, <laughs> he couldn't get out himself. And uh, yeah, the military collector uh, claimed it was from his private arsenal. <laughs> 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 oh. oh, this is the shit that I got to work with here, you listener. Uh, I think we should send this to every. Every German bomb squad that has to defuse a World War Two bomb in 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 Germany and just go could be worse. You could have been defusing this. <laughs> this, is, this is so good. There's a quote describing it. Uh, it was a solid shot round. It was chunky, pointed lump of lead designed to rip through a tank's armor. <laughs> oh. Oh, so yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about that. I've been waiting. The thing you, you don't know, listeners, is we've been we've been vetoing this article for the last four weeks because other stuff kept coming up and we kept missing it and kept missing it. But it has been something that's been on the back burner and it's definitely in our mind's oh. eye for, for for long enough. And I just find it it's it's the perfect mm-hmm. story, isn't it? It's like it's a bit yep. salacious. It's nobody ultimately got hurt. There was a sense of drama and excitement. And for the British press, it mentioned the war. So that's, that's a trifecta Yeah, achieved. like it's exactly everything. You, <laughs> like, like I'm sure that I can I can envisage a, a Daily Mail article that has like a, a diagram oh, yeah. of, of the construction of one of these shells, you know. All right, so a quick challenge for you. You you work at the, the Mirror, the Sun, the Express, whichever. Pun, the headline. What are you going to do? Um, oh, God. Give, me a, give you a pun off the top of my head. Um, I, I've got one that just came into me. That's why I asked. I'm gonna go for um, bums away. <laughs> <laughs> bums away. That is very good. That is very. Good. I don't think I'm gonna top that. Anything I've come up with 
is only going to be secondary to that. Bums away. Well, <laughs> bums away. <laughs> <laughs>